Um, they're tired, but they're energized. Can I this? sit in the back or I'm stand sure in the back? Can, I'm sure you can sit in the back. There's room in the, in okay. the back of his room, so. Thank you for letting me sit in the back of your class. Then I watched you moving around. I thought I was watching a yoga class or a, an athletic class rather than a language class. What's going on there? Well, the whole point is to put the language in a real context. I'm Tamara Smith, and I am a master teacher and a TA during ALPS. ALPS stands for Advanced Language Programs, intensive 10-day sessions held in the summers at the Rossius Center at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Fernando, the way Tamara was speaking French in her class, I felt like I was watching a movie with Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> really? I recorded during the class. This will give you a flavor. I see what you mean. When I sat down with Tamara after the class, I asked her to repeat what she had been drilling. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to think. How does that one go? Um... You utter moron. Um, where did you get your, driver, your, your driver's license? In a party bag? <laughs> That's great. The drama, the finger snapping, the emotion, it's all part of what's called the Rassius method. Rassius. Was Rassius a professor at Dartmouth? Yes, his name was John Rassius, and almost since I started researching American bilingualism, I heard about John Rassius. I met people who had been his student and who told me, I must know about this man. Is he still alive? Alas, John Rassius died in 2015 at the age of 90. But in our quest to visit and report on America's greatest summer language programs, I knew the Rassius Center at Dartmouth would be on our list. It was a busy summer of reporting for you. It was. I arrived at Dartmouth in early July, and Tamara was one of the staff members I watched in action. Turns out, Tamara sought out Professor Rossius when she was still in high school and applying to colleges. She asked if she could sit in on one of his classes. After class, she met him. Yeah, and so he came over and met you. What was that like? Oh, it was, it was like meeting a rock star for me. So when I met him, and he's lar he was larger than life, and um, he just, he was like a tidal wave of love. I'm Steve Levine. I'm Fernando Hernandez. And you're listening to America the Bilingual. So you went to Dartmouth to learn about this man you had heard so much about and to study his methods. Yes, and in the back of my mind was a question. With such a charismatic figure, was there a danger, now that he was gone, that his Rassius Center might not be able to continue without him? And what did you learn? Well, more than I bargained for, including a surprise that you especially will appreciate. Because? Because it has to do with Mexico. Uh-huh. But let's get back to Tamara. I asked Tamara to explain what she learned from John Rossius. He was the embodiment of loving your fellow man when you love your students 
they discover resources within themselves that they didn't realize that they had. And yes, you care about what you're teaching, but you really care about them and you care about what the language could mean to them personally, that students aren't afraid to make mistakes. Today, the Rossia Center is run by John's daughter, Helene. On the morning I arrived, Helene came out to the parking lot to meet me and gave me a big hug. First time you met? Yes, and immediately I felt some of that Rossius love. She brought me into the building where it seemed like there was a party going on. So describe where we are. Where are we? We are currently in a dorm complex on the campus of Dartmouth College. This is the Alps. Oh no, oh no, sorry, Brazil just... Oh no! The World Cup is going on, so there's a large screen in the back of the room, and there are people forming, sitting and forming and standing nervously watching the game. Brazil just scored, as you may have heard before. So we're all a little kerplunked about that, because we are very Mexico, pro-Mexico here, right now. Well, I'm happy they were all for Mexico. Helene said she decided to allow a rare deviation from their schedule for the game. Well, I think it would have been a revolution otherwise. What is supposed to be going on here so today? Currently, we're, the way the schedule works is the day, it's an eight hours classroom day and we have three hours of master class that frame the day. So the morning at eight o'clock we have a master teacher who's generally a professor kicks off the day, gives people grammar, delivers some cultural, but really keeps at them hard. It's a hard, long hour because the next three hours are followed by what we call drill. It should be less violent, I think, but small group intensive language sessions. And the drill is a way to bring it all home. That was part of a drill class that we heard Tamara leading before, right? It was, and I next sat down with another of John Rossius's students, who today is a professor himself. You were a student of John Rossius back in the 70s, so right. uh, tell me about that. John Rossius was the most dynamic professor I ever met at Dartmouth College, and to give you an idea of his voice, it was even lower than mine. It was like, Stephen, it's great to have you here. My name is Joel Goldfield. I'm a professor at Fairfield University. Joel explained that traditional language classes had a bias toward reading and writing because, frankly, it was easier for teachers to grade papers outside of class. But what about for speaking? What if there were a system of providing immediate feedback on speaking so we could make error corrections like that in a snap? In fact, part of this repetition method where we act out things and speak and get feedback all within a split second relies on a snap to let us know that it's our turn to speak. Joel is explaining one of the key parts of the Rossius method, drill. Wait, drill is often the subject of ridicule when we interview language teachers as in drill and kill? As in killing enthusiasm, yes, but drill in the Rossius method is a very different thing. Here's Joel. The research that we've done shows, especially the work of uh, Professor Potter at MIT, that the human auditory buffer memory only lasts like 1.2 to 1.7 seconds. If any meaningful sounds occur during that time period, that period of time when your brain can retain the sound is reduced enormously. So actually by saying someone's name, 
or making any meaningful comments that require thinking, we are causing our students to fail. So the snap is a way of doing what? The snap is a way of saying, I'm done with what I'm saying and now I'm gonna call on one of you guys. That's just what Tamara was doing in her drill class with lots of emotion. By having all of the dialogues be rooted in some kind of an emotional context, whether it's frustration or anger or sad or being nervous, because students don't just repeat, they repeat with, feel. with feeling, it opens up more neural pathways to recall the language because you're not just recalling what you heard and said, you're recalling how it made you feel. And it works. Here's Joel Goldfield. The American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages, or ACTFL, tested some of our students by phone who had been rank beginners, and several of them were already at the intermediate low level after 10 days of immersion. So Steve, is the RACIAS method then all about these drills? There are also the master classes that Helene mentioned, and there's lots of theater too. Here's Joel. Well, if we really want to communicate with people, let's look at all the strategies. Let's act out things. How do you show that you want something? How do you show that you love? How do you show that you appreciate what your students are learning? It shouldn't be a very dry, sterile approach. It should be some sort of joie de vivre. So it sounds way different from the language classes I had in school. We really prize success. And if someone makes a mistake, that's part of the process. John Rossius created an error-friendly environment. It's fine to make errors, but in the techniques that he has, they all have a means to provide immediate, if it's oral, immediate feedback. So Steve, you mentioned a surprise, a surprise about Mexico. Let Raul Lopez give the answer. I met John Racias in 2008 and because I got a scholarship to come to participate in the program. I recognize the accent of my countryman. I was an English uh, teacher in elementary level. When I went back to Mexico, I started using the method and everything and I saw immediate results with my students. They were speaking in English. I believe immediately in the method. My name is Raul Lopez, and I am the academic coordinator of the IAPE program. The IAPE program is the Inter-American Partnership for Education. It's the application of the Rossius method in Mexico to help public school English teachers improve their English and their teaching. I sat down with the director of IAPE. I'm Jim Citrin, and I'm the director of the Inter-American Partnership for Education, which is a partnership between Educando and the Rossius Center of World Languages and Cultures at Dartmouth College. Jim explained why Spanish-English bilingualism is so important in Mexico. It can make a real difference in people getting jobs, getting better paying jobs, having better quality of life. A professional who speaks English earns 28% more than one who doesn't. And Jim says more and more employers in Mexico want to hire bilinguals. Even the most basic entry-level positions from tourism to science, technology, business, all fields. I can vouch for that in Mexico. Being bilingual changed my life for the better in terms of economic opportunities. The thing is, for me to learn English, my parents had to enroll me at a private high school. Until recently, if you went to a private school in Mexico, you had a pretty good chance of learning English. And if you went to a public school in Mexico, your chances were much less. And 
The gold standard for evaluating this kind of educational intervention is a randomized control trial, which was funded by the Inter-American Development Bank. The students advanced 10 weeks more in speaking, reading, writing, and listening than the control group. And the students expressed that they had higher expectations for having a job at age 30 and for attending university, which was not really one of our objectives of the program initially. Where did those higher expectations come from? What the researchers surmised, and I think it makes sense, is that the students were seeing that they were being successful in an area of their life. The YAPE program was the brainchild of a Dartmouth grad named Luann Zerlo, but now is being funded mostly not by Americans, but by Mexicans. Our biggest donor is a Mexican donor right now. It's a no-brainer to people in Mexico. They understand the importance of English. The Mexican government has made it a priority. I asked Jim Citron why he does what he does. We're living in a time when there's so much talk about walls, especially between the two countries that I work in. And this project is all about building bridges across those countries. And that's why it's so rewarding for all of us who are working on it. Raul Lopez, the Yape coordinator in Mexico, told me John Rossi is still inspires him. He created a bunch of techniques to teach and learn languages, but it's more than the techniques, it's more about the philosophy behind the method. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really caring about your Raul students. Raul sounds like the kind of teacher I wish I had when I went to a public junior high school. Paying attention to details, like the way you connect with them, the way you want them to succeed and feel good about what they're learning. And also, well, the importance of languages in the world in general to give them a better, more opportunities or a better life. Fernando, you know one of my favorite questions when I interview people is, can you finish the sentence, I'll never forget when? I'll never forget the time when John always ripped his shirt open at every ALP session and said that it was by far the best session that had ever existed in all humankind. <laughs> and he said it every time, which was amazing. And it's a philosophy that I've incorporated into my life. I am Fernando Auxin. And I've been a master teacher with YAPE for the past 11, 12 years. Wow, since the beginning. Since the first program. I asked Fernando Ossin whether the Rossius method could continue without this big loving man. I think, yes, he was a much larger than life figure. Mm -hmm. But I think his legacy is also larger than life in many ways. I think that that same heart-to-heart -heart mentality and that 
language of love with which he taught is being transmitted through Raul, through Jim, through Helene, his daughter, through all the people that collaborate with the Rasis programs, he's still very much alive. I put the same question to Joel Goldfield. I think it will because we have many devoted previous protégés who have been students in his class or students of the many faculty that he trained. And now there are tens of thousands of alumni who have had these courses who are carrying forth this uh, enactment of his method. I asked Joel if the impact of John Rossius is even bigger in Mexico. Yes, because whereas we're counting more like in the hundreds of thousands in the United States, uh, we can see now millions of students in Mexico already. Jim Citron agrees. John's legacy is living on in the 2,400 teachers all around Mexico who are teaching with this method, plus the countless other teachers who've attended workshops and have been touched by, by him. Michael Friesner, who started working for John Rossius as a student 20 years ago, is now the academic operations director for the Summer Immersion Alps program. He told me he hopes people don't get the wrong impression. Even with him no longer being around, I think that 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 can give that unfortunate impression that we're just devoted to something that isn't real when it's quite the opposite. We're devoted to everything that he represented and represents about that authentic interpersonal connection. Do you try to perpetuate his methods or his style in your own teaching? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of a lot of aspects of the Rossius method that are really relevant today and missing in a lot of other methods that I see used around. We all channel him in ways that are authentic to ourselves. And for Michael, the stakes are high. People in, from different cultures, I think the lesson to take away from John Rossius is that's not something to fear. Having diversity of viewpoints, having a diversity of languages, it's a richness that, that we should all take advantage of. Let's go back to Helene Rossius. Why did so many students love your father? Because they didn't feel like they were strangers. We never knew how many kids were going to come Sometimes home. he would call home to warn Helene's mother, Mary. Mary, I'm bringing five kids home for dinner, which she always expected. But that's how we grew up. Those guys were our first babysitters. So it was both professional and academic and very, very, very emotional. summer he died, so many people brought their families to meet him. It was a pilgrimage summer. Is it going to be a challenge? Is it a challenge now keeping on his legacy when he is gone? Yes, I know. The challenge, the challenge, I think, is sometimes I really need his advice. So I think for me, emotionally, I would love to be able to kick it around with him, you know, where it's direction, what are we doing? But I do feel like we know what we're doing, and we've got some incredible team members that are helping with that. Let's return to Tamara. 
When she's not teaching summer students at the Rassia Center at Dartmouth, she teaches fifth graders at the American School in London. How do you try to carry on his method in your own work? It's the very core of what I do, everything I do. Tamara told me that during the Sochi Olympics, she had her fifth graders write letters to the French Olympians. The most valuable interactions were really from the two athletes who kind of had the most disappointing days of their career at the Olympics, and the kids wanted to continue to write, and um, they wrote them again, and they said, and they're very, very simple fifth-grade French, vous skiez très bien, nous admirons, you ski great, we admire, you fall, you continue, we love. And that's pure John. Why is that pure John? Because... He was all about human connection. Language was a way of bringing people together, of breaking down barriers, of lifting people up. That letter is all of that. I asked Tamara whether John's legacy will live on. I wondered what it would be like the first year when I came back to Alps, after he had passed away. But I think he reached so many of us over the years. And it's not just those of us who've become language teachers people who are bringing that same passion and kindness towards others and wanting to make connections into whatever career they've chosen, that he lives on through thousands of people. It still feels as if he's with us. The America the Bilingual podcast is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFUL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and edited by Fernando Hernandez, who also does our sound design and mixing. Mim Harrison is our editorial and brand director for the America the Bilingual project. Graphic arts are created by Carlos Plaza Design Studio. Associate producer Becky Rankin provided her ace field work as always. Special thanks to my friend Wayne Welch who came with me to Dartmouth. Support for the America the Bilingual Project comes from the Levenger Foundation. Music in this episode, Quasi-Motion by Kevin McLeod, was used with a Creative Commons attribution license. Our thanks to Epidemic Sound for helping us make beautiful music together. If you like this episode, please share with a friend and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine. So, so help me say you utter moron because my my friend who took me here, Wayne, is a, is, speaks a little French. I want to be able to say that to him. Okay, espèce d'imbécile. Espèce d'imbécile. You gotta be angry. Espèce.
Espèce d'imbécile. Espèce d'imbécile. Yeah, but you gotta like really say it with, you can't just be like, oh, espèce d'imbécile. Espèce d'imbécile. D'imbécile. D'imbécile, like imbécile. D'imbécile. Yeah, it really means you piece of an imbécile, but it... Say it again for me. Espèce d'imbécile. Espèce d'imbécile. Mm -hmm. Très bien. <laughs> <laughs>